believers ought to be studying what God has said he will do so that we can persevere now, understanding uh, what's ahead. everyone and welcome to Word Processing's Cover to Cover series in which our goal is to move through all 66 books of the Bible one by one in order to grow not only in our understanding of them individually but also in our understanding of how they fit together as an inspired and cohesive whole. Today we come to Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians and to help us unpack this text we welcome to the podcast Dr. Christopher Cohn. Dr. Cohn has served as the president of a number of theological institutions over the years. He's a scholar and theologian, professor and preacher, and currently serves as the president and CEO of Agathon EDU Educational Group. Dr. Cohn, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time. It is my pleasure. Always good to be with you. Well, let's get into this book. When we come to the book of 2 Thessalonians, Dr. Cohn, where do we find ourselves in the Bible? What are its historical and canonical contexts? Well, a few months earlier, in uh, maybe 51 A.D., Paul had written to the church at Thessaloniki. Uh, We call it Thessalonica because it sounds better. But uh, he wrote to the church in Thessalonica and is encouraging believers in their faith, hope, and love. And he tells them to excel still more. Uh, In other words, they're doing what they need to do, continue to grow, be better. Uh, And so he, he writes to encourage them and then to uh, encourage them in their hope gives them some instructions toward the end of the first letter, chapters four and five, on hope and what that looks like. And it appears that they totally misunderstood uh, perceiving their own uh, difficulties to be the tribulation. And so Paul writes a few months later, a second letter to help them get a better grasp on where they were and what they can look forward to. Great, that's helpful. And I realize that this is a shorter letter, but is there a discernible structure to it that may help us understand the parts more accurately? You know, it. yes, I, th- I think it's, it's maybe a little more challenging because it is very brief and he's going to focus on hope. And I think that's where the structure comes in. Uh, you'll notice early in the letter, he, he commends them for their faith and their love, but not for their hope. And so he, he explains in chapter one, the purpose for their hope, the, the, the outcome. And then in chapter two, uh, he describes, uh, he, he, he kind of offers correction of their thinking uh, and explains God's true provision for, for hope. And then uh, toward the end of the letter, uh, he challenges them to kind of walk in that hope. Hmm. So hope really seems to be the major theme of this short letter. Yeah, yeah. And you know, it's, it's remarkable how they're commended. They're not rebuked for anything in the first letter, but they do need to grow in regards to their hope in the first letter. And so as he provides them instruction from the Lord about hope so that their hope can grow, it's incredible that they missed some things, allowing their circumstances to dictate their theology, causing their hope to waver some. Mm-hmm. I don't want to take anything for granted here, Dr. Cohn. Maybe you could define hope for us. That's a Christian word we throw around a lot, hope in this, hope in that. What actually is hope? Uh, That's a really good question. I would suggest that hope is really most defined by or its significance is found in the object, just like faith. Faith is simply belief in something. I believe in the chair that I'm sitting in, that it won't drop me to the floor. 
but a lot of times the chairs have let me down, right? They're not uh, sovereign and eternal. Hope is similar. Hope is an, an anticipation of something that we don't know for certain, but if we understand the object of the hope, we can, we can discern how reliable that hope is. For example, again, using the chair illustration, I may hope that my chair won't fall. And, you know, as, as you may have experienced from time to time, the hydraulics in your chair will fail and you start to sink down, right? Well, I've had that happen. Things fail, right? They're not dependable. Sometimes they're not worthy of faith and sometimes they're not worthy of hope. But God is the object of our hope. When a believer in Jesus Christ puts their hope, their anticipation of the future, and their trust in him, uh, they're able to know for certain that what they're anticipating and what they're looking forward to will actually come to pass. So for a Christian, we could add a theological definition that hope is not just uh, a wishful uh, look at the future, but instead it's a knowledgeable anticipation of what will take place in the future. So if we talk about lacking hope or growing in hope, it's always about growing in our understanding of the object of our hope and not in hope itself. Is that accurate? Yeah. And that's the key. That's an absolute key. If we focus too much on faith and hope on their own, uh, on their own merit and without respect to the object, we can have all the faith in the world, right? Uh, but if the object of the faith is not worthy, then it's foolishness. Uh, if we have all the hope in the world, but the object of our hope, what we're hoping for is not promised by God, uh, then we're likely to be disappointed. So we ought to hope in those things, put our trust, our hope in, in those things that God has assured us of, and then we can know uh, that those things have come to pass. Well, that's important to put in place before we start walking through this text, because if you don't understand what hope is, a lot of what Paul writes here will be nonsensical. So let's start working our way through this text and stopping along the way. As we read it, it becomes pretty clear pretty quick that these believers were facing significant persecution for their faith. For example, in just the fourth verse, Paul writes this, Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Dr. Cohen, how does Paul encourage these believers and us by extension to endure trials faithfully? Yeah, I love that you mentioned verse four because he, he describes that they are speaking proudly of the Thessalonian believers because they are demonstrating perseverance and faith. And I think that's the, that's the key. They're undergoing persecution and affliction, and they're enduring. They're holding up under it, even though they've got this theological misunderstanding. They're persevering. And they're looking to God, even if they misunderstand some of the specifics of the prophetic calendar. And so I think that's, that's an important place to start, is looking at their example, that uh, they're Faith is greatly enlarged, and that the, the love they have toward each other is growing even greater. So when we are enduring in trial and difficulty, a lot of times uh, we realize that we're focused on Christ, therefore we're enduring, and it allows us to help others and encourage them along the way. If we're focused on ourselves and our own difficulties, our faith isn't growing because we're not looking to Christ. 
and our love isn't becoming greater. We're, we're looking to our own concerns and fears rather than to those of others. And so verses three and four offer a really important example, I think, a recipe for how to endure under difficulty. You mentioned this prophetic calendar. And when we get into the second chapter of this book, Paul offers the believers some clarity regarding things to come, end times, eschatology. A couple of questions here, Dr. Cohen. What was the confusion plaguing the Thessalonians? And what information does Paul offer as a corrective? And then how should what he writes here shape the way Christians today live, serve, and hope in the future? Excellent, excellent, excellent question. I think uh, in chapter one, we see this very subtle commendation of their faith and their love, but there's a challenge with the hope. They're not commended for their hope. And in chapter two, verse one, we see the specific problem uh, identified and it's actually in, chat, in, in verse two, he says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So Paul is writing to them because they think their, their persecution and suffering is so bad and so difficult. They're, they're assuming that they are actually in the day of the Lord, uh, which would put them in the tribulation and perhaps even what Jesus called the great tribulation in Matthew 24. And so then how does that affect us? How does that help us today as we shift to us today? That's great for the the church in Thessalonica, but for us today, Christians living today, how does this encourage us? Well, it's, it's really interesting to see that in the writings of all of the New Testament authors, uh, we discover that when they're, encouraging us to walking with Christ and and to persevering and enduring. They're always pointing to the eschatological certain future, Mm -hmm. the things that God has accomplished and will accomplish for us that we can be certain of. And some might suggest that it really doesn't matter the timing and how God does things. But I think it's really, really important to recognize that God gives prophetic details to the Thessalonians in in the first letter uh, to encourage them. And then when their hope is wavering, he gives them more clarification and more detail. So the idea is more prophetic certainty, not less. And I think for us as believers today, uh, we might have a tendency to downplay prophecy because God is taking so long. It seems like Peter talked about, you know, Jesus said he was going to return, but it's been 2000 years. So rather than constantly focus on that, uh, we, we want to focus on just doing things now. But we're told over and over and over to focus on that, to look to the future, to look at what God has done and will do. Uh, that's a big part of my encouragement. So, you know, the punchline is Believers ought to be studying what God has said he will do so that we can persevere now, understanding uh, what's ahead. Yeah. I've heard it said that prophecy in the Bible is like two magnets interacting with one another. Sometimes it pushes people away from it, and sometimes it draws people in. This topic of biblical prophecy, it has this polarizing effect. And like you said, many Christians today are repelled by the idea, maybe an apathy or an ignorance or a distaste for it, whatever the case may be. And when he talks in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 about the day of the Lord, they thought it was at that time. I can't help but think of our world today and in North America, many people are looking around the world saying, surely 
this is the end of days. Surely this is the tribulation. I mean, look at all the conflict all over the world. How would you encourage believers, Dr. Cohn, today to say, I know it's bad, but these are actually just birth pangs and not the real thing. How would you encourage people to think rightly about end times the way Paul is doing so here with the Thessalonians? First, we need to recognize how important it is to God. Hmm. Uh, Notice what Paul says in chapter 2, verse 2. He says that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. If we have a misunderstanding of his prophetic plan, then we will be quickly shaken in our composure and will be disturbed. Hmm. And it's important that we not be those things. And so because of that, uh, God offers us real information that we can uh, rely on and count on. And so it's important to God. The future is important. And we see it again consistently, recognizing how important it is to God. And if something is important to God, then it ought to be important to us. If I can go on a tiny rabbit trail or maybe get on a soapbox for just a moment, we talk about essentials of the faith, uh, but you never hear anyone talking about eschatology or the teachings, the biblical teachings of the future as essentials of the faith. But Paul is telling us here that if you don't understand these key ideas, you'll be shaken uh, in your composure, you'll be disturbed, Uh, you won't be able to endure. I would say that makes these things pretty essential. So they're important to God. And that's kind of where we start. It's important to him. It's got to be important to us. We need to spend time in studying these things. It seems that a clear view of things to come is one of the ways that Paul is encouraging these believers to endure the trials of this world. And to lack clarity of things to come actually hinders our ability to endure. Isn't that right? Like what he's saying here? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, in in Hebrews 12, we're told to keep focused on the author and the perfecter of the faith. You know, and you think about those two, those two aspects, the author, the one who began it, and then the perfecter, the one who completes it. Hmm. Well, if I'm looking at Christ and I'm I'm not focused on the reality that he will complete all this, then I'm missing a lot of what he's about. You know, he, in Revelation, he says, he, he writes all these things. He tells John to write all these things for the benefit of the churches, uh, which includes you and I. And he says, I'm coming quickly, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that word is suddenly when he comes, it's going to be boom, it's going to happen quick. And so we need to be ready. So these things are given to us to encourage us so that we know the end of the story so that we won't be disturbed. And we see Jesus did that with his own disciples in, in Matthew 24. Uh, you know, they're asking, what are these things going to happen? What's the sign of, you know, of your coming? And in the end of the age, and Jesus explains kind of methodically what they can expect and, and, and not to be shaken and deceived by false prophets and false messiahs. And so it's important to him, and it ought to be important to us. And he lays it out with nouns and verbs that we can understand. When we think about the topic of end times, there can be many reactions And it seems like in this church, one of the reactions to thinking about the end times was laziness or inactivity. In chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, Paul writes this to them. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. For we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Dr. Cohn, how does this admonition, this exhortation, fit into the epistle as a whole? And how does Paul try and motivate the believers to be disciplined and responsible in their work while they look to the end at the same time and endure the trials of their current circumstances? 
Well, so thinking about the trials in those circumstances, there's kind of two parts to this. First of all, in chapter two, Paul is encouraging these believers that the day of the Lord hasn't come. Their, their difficulties are great, but the day of the Lord has not come because these other things have to happen first. And he talks about what those are. Maybe we'll get into those uh, as, as we are able. And so as he's correcting them that this isn't the promised day of the Lord, because what happens at the end of the day of the Lord, at the end of this tribulation period, Jesus returns, uh, he brings in justice, he inaugurates his kingdom. And so the time for working for believers is kind of finished. And so in chapter three, as these believers were thinking that they were in the day of the Lord, they're just waiting for Jesus to, to come back and start his kingdom. And they were no longer focused on the task that he had given them. Well, they had misunderstood some really important things like the rapture in First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4. They had missed some key uh, signs and figures around the day of the Lord. So they, they had missed the whole thing. Consequently, they thought they were at the end and they were not, they didn't have the sense of urgency that they needed to have. And I think that's kind of the, that's kind of the challenge that, that Paul is dealing with. Hmm. How would you encourage people listening to this, Dr. Cohn, who do think about the end times, and it does, if they're honest, cause them to either panic or fear or be relegated to inactivity, frozen in uncertainty? How would you encourage them to work toward a right understanding and a type of hope that Paul here is advocating for? What would be some very clear initial steps you would pass to them toward? Boy, that's... uh... That can we can have some fun with that. Maybe by by introduction, I might say you're you're either going to die, or you're going to meet the Lord in the clouds, as First uh, Thessalonians four describes, thirteen through seventeen. Now you might believe that Jesus isn't going to come in this event called the rapture, as Paul revealed in First Thessalonians four thirteen through seventeen. But whether you believe it or not is irrelevant with respect to what he's going to do. He said he's going to do it. He's going to do it whether I believe he's going to do it or not. But what if he doesn't do it in my lifetime? Well, then I'm going to die, right? I have a very limited period of time with which to, you know, to walk with him on this, on this earth and to serve him. Very limited stewardship. I think in Matthew 25 and the, the, the steward, the, the talents and the opportunities that this master gave these, these uh, various stewards, and they had an opportunity to do something really special, but it was a limited time because the master came back. So I would remind us, uh, myself first, that he's coming back. And if he doesn't come back in my lifetime, then I'm going to meet him. I'll, I'll go to him in death. Uh, so I have limited time. And the question is, am I being faithful with the time? And that's what these Thessalonians were being challenged with in chapter three. They had this incredible opportunity uh, and, and they were wasting it by being lazy. So I'd start there. Uh, another encouragement would be to exegete the times. Uh, obviously, you have to exegete the scriptures first in order to exegete the times. But what I, what I mean by that is in chapter two, Paul describes things that have to happen before the return of the Lord to the earth. Not the return of the Lord in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, where he comes to meet uh, believers in the clouds, what we call the rapture, but what Paul describes in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians. 
and what he describes in, in chapter two of Second Thessalonians as the day of the Lord, that uh, these events happen first, that uh, the lawless one will be revealed in, in verse eight, and that this apostasy, verse three, this falling away or departure is the best translation. By the way, I would say verse three is talking about the rapture, that the rapture, the, the departure comes first, the man of lawlessness is revealed, and then the day of the Lord, the seven-year period starts in this time of judgment. So when a believer understands the prophetic calendar, they can look at events around them and recognize where we are and where we aren't, hmm. and, and, and know that either way, our time is short. I don't know. Does that, does that make any sense at all, Josiah? I think it does, yeah. Especially when you said we can recognize where we aren't. I think that seems to be one of the key issues plaguing the Thessalonians. If I'm reading 2 Thessalonians properly, they were misdiagnosing the times and assuming that they were in the day of the Lord. And Paul's saying, look around. There's every indication that we are not there yet. And sometimes we have a lot of, a lot of chicken littles around the world right now saying the sky is falling. We're in the tribulation, those types of things. And Paul's encouraging us, look around and see where we're not, as well as where we are, for sure. Yes, definitely. And again, if, if it's kind of like that old adage of uh, counterfeit money, right? If you, if you know what the real thing looks like, if you know how to read authentic, then you can spot the false. You don't have to memorize every false uh, kind of money, every counterfeit money, because you know that doesn't have the, the aspects of truth or authenticity. Mm -hmm. In the same way, uh, when we hear someone proclaiming uh, some new teaching or some idea, if we know scripture and we're rooted and grounded in what God has told us and what we can be certain of, when we hear these things and look around and, 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 and see these swells of culture, we can know whether they're authentic or whether they're in agreement with the Lord. And if they're not, again, we can identify where we aren't and not be deceived. And Jesus warned his disciples about that. Paul warns Timothy about that. Paul, Peter, John warn believers about that, uh, about not being deceived by false teaching. So it's it it comes to play in uh, understanding the future because the future is built on what God has done in the past and is doing in the present. Well, let's switch gears and talk about prayer. There are prayers sprinkled all through this short little letter. Paul prays for them in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 1, in chapter 2 again, in chapter 3. They're sprinkled all throughout. What can we learn about intercession from the Apostles' inspired example? How does he model prayer for us today, Dr. Cohn? You know, I, I, I really love Paul's example. I'm, I'm deeply thankful for this because Paul, because of his letters, and the relationship he had with Timothy, for example, we're able to get a window into discipleship and what, what a, one person pouring into others really looks like. And Paul spends years in places teaching. Uh, he's focused on sound doctrine. He's focused on serving them. Uh, he works hard so that they're not burdened by his ministry. Now, all these fantastic examples and throughout every one of his letters, they're just dripping with prayer. They're dripping with, with communication uh, to God for these other people. I think Paul shows us, number one, that prayer is not something we set apart time to do. It is our life to walk with God, to abide in Christ. That's what Paul's talking about when he told them earlier 
in the first letter to pray without ceasing. Uh, he's, he's telling them that we should always be in this prayerful habit. You know, there's no, there's no biblical precedent or mandate for getting down on our knees and putting our hands together and bowing our head. That's, that's not what biblical prayer is. Not that that's prohibited, but biblical prayer is simply communing with God, presenting our, our praise and our requests and, and our concerns to him you know, kind of rehearsing his word with him, like Daniel, presenting God's own promises back to him. And then Paul is doing those things. But one of the things I really appreciate about Paul's example of prayer, and this would be a second real key thing, is he's constantly praying, uh, thanking God for others and praying that they would have understanding in Christ, that they would have strength and richness in the, in the knowledge of Christ. And so his desire is for their well-being. And that's reflected in his prayers all over the place. And I, mm-hmm. I greatly appreciate that. Yeah, some of these are just so powerful, and they are clearly not restricted to the first century. Chapter 3, verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. What a powerful prayer from the apostle to believers. And certainly we can take that and pray that for ourselves today in the circumstances that we're dealing with. Though they are different, the prayer still remains very uh, appropriate. Yeah, and, and I love that one. It's, it's kind of a double entendre. He's praying, asking the Lord to provide them with peace. How does he do that? He's, he's explained already uh, that if their hope is sound and solid, they, they then have this knowledge that helps them endure. They have that peace. We see it when he writes to the Philippians, right? Uh, as, as we're presenting our requests to the Lord and casting our concerns on him, then we're guarded. Our hearts and minds are guarded by, by the peace of Christ that, that surpasses all comprehension and understanding. So, Uh, God grants these things, and he's already provided us the recipe for many of them. And Paul is challenging the Thessalonians to kind of bake the cake with the recipe God has provided. Hmm. And he's asking the Lord that God will help them to grow so that they can receive the peace that he's already already provided them. It's just awesome. It's, It's there for the taking. Wonderful. What would you say, Dr. Cohen, is the main thrust of this book? Why is it important? Why would God preserve 2 Thessalonians for us today? Well, because we, like the Thessalonians, fail in our hope often. And until we see the Lord face to face, we need hope. Uh, we know that faith and hope are temporary, right? Uh, we, uh, faith being the assurance of things not seen, we, we believe in Christ. We hope to see him face to face one day based on his promises. But one day we will see him face to face. And when that happens, faith is gone. There is no more faith. It's now sight uh, and hope is gone. It's now reality. Now what's left is just continuing to walk in love. And I think he writes to the Thessalonians, encouraging them in their their, uh, faith and love, challenging them because their hope is is not what it should be because they haven't understood what God has said. And we, we fall into the same trap. We need the same exhortations and we need to have our hope bathed in truth uh, rather than bathed in wish. And I love that God has provided us his word with certainty so that we can look forward, not kind of nervous about what's going to happen, but absolutely confident. We can trust in him. We can count on him. 
uh, because of his promises. So we should be eager and active and doing all that we can with the time he's provided. Ending on a more personal note, Dr. Cohn, during your years of study, how has God used Second Thessalonians specifically in your life to teach, reprove, correct, or train you in righteousness? Well, he's still doing that. Um, <laughs> so far, I can, I can think of maybe, maybe three major ways. One would be the prayerfulness, as, as you've mentioned, you've, uh, you've identified Paul's example of prayer. We see that in his relationship with the Thessalonians and in his other letters. That's awesome. Reminds us that walking with the Lord is not only about knowing truth. It's about, it's about communicating with God. He has spoken in his word. We speak back in prayer. So there's that aspect. Uh, the second and third would be uh, a general understanding, first of all. Uh, number two, a general understanding of the importance of God's prophetic plan, that hope is rooted in the truth of what God has said he will do. And so uh, prophecy, biblical prophecy, biblical eschatology is a critical piece of worldview. Everyone has a worldview. The question is, is it reliable? And God's worldview is reliable. And the more we understand uh, his descriptions of what will take place in the future, the more confidence we can have. That's a second area. Maybe a third uh, area uh, would be the specific aspect in chapter two, and it's fairly technical, but it helps us to understand the timing of the rapture that's described in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, starting in 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, and really uh, 2, 2, and 3, that those verses help us understand, just like 1 Thessalonians, which puts that event, the rapture, in chapter 4, before the day of the Lord, in chapter 5, he does the same thing in chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. This departure and the revelation or the revealing of this man of lawlessness, and then the day of the Lord. So a third aspect for me of how this letter has been very helpful in my personal growth as God continues to shape me is, has helped me to see that the specifics of God's plan matter, and he's revealed them very carefully. And I don't need to say, well, you know, it'll, it'll all pan out in the end, and whatever God will do, will do. No, we can, we can with confidence, uh, speak to some of these things where God has spoken. Hmm. We don't want to be uh, confident and dogmatic where he hasn't spoken. That's, that gets us into trouble. But I think in this letter, he has spoken clearly. And so that's maybe a third year. It's been really encouraging to me as I uh, seek to understand his, his worldview. Amen. And thanks again for all the time you've given us today, Dr. Conan, helping us understand 2 Thessalonians a little bit better. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Thanks for joining us this week. For more information about Oak Ridge Bible Chapel, the ministries of the church, or for more resources like this one, please visit oakridgebiblechapel.org. And make sure to join us next week as together we make our way through the Bible cover to cover.